0: I'll ask you this morning one last time to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. This will be our, our last message in 1 Corinthians. We've been about a year in this book. And, um, that's not necessarily a long time, but we, we have, uh, I think covered it We've seen the big themes in the book of 1st Corinthians. And if I did my math correctly, and that's highly susceptible, um, but this would be the 33rd book that I have taught through since I started as pastor of this church 21 years ago. 33 is halfway through the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible it's taken us 21 years, so here's my, my appeal. My appeal is I would like to invite you back for the next 21 years as we cover the rest of the Bible. So when we're done here um, for the next five weeks after this, what, what what we've decided to do is when we finish a book, we're going to go into the book of Psalms and cover anywhere between five and 10 Psalms as kind of that buffer between books. That way we, we also in the next 21 years, get through the book of Psalms. Um, and then uh, we'll deal with uh, five Psalms, verse, Psalms 6 through 10. And then when we are done with that, we will start the book of Ecclesiastes. So um, start reading Psalms 6 through 10, and then... Six weeks down the road, we'll, we'll start the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. And so you probably want to start reading that or listen to it. Put it on your phone, listen to it in the car, listen to it while you're doing housework. And I know that you will be blessed. So. That's where we are. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 through 24. So as usual, let me give you the context so that we're all kind of up to date on where we are. And the context of 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 24 is the entire letter. And what we have found in the entire letter of this first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church is that one of the things that has stood out is the arrogance of the Corinthians. They are notably arrogant. We see Paul use this idea, this word of arrogance over and over again. They are puffed up. They are proud. And this arrogance has manifested itself in numerous ways. It has manifested itself in their... Um, False idea of superiority. I'm a little bit better than you. I follow Paul and you follow, Ap- or I follow Apollos and I follow Paul. And there are these schisms, but the schisms aren't just um, divisions. They are divisions with one group thinking that they are superior to another group. There is sexual immorality and Paul is appalled by, by this. He's, he's like going, why haven't you done anything about this? This is rampant in your church. This is going on in your church. And, and you haven't done anything about this. In fact, when he gets to the issue of sexual immorality, he's, he rebukes the congregation more than the man involved with in the sin. Because the congregation has done nothing about it. We see lawsuits, and the lawsuits are, are going on. We see superiority in regards to... I'm spiritual gifts, that my spiritual gift is superior to your spiritual gift. And if you maybe were a a little bit more mature in the faith, then maybe you would uh, be able to have the same spiritual gift as I do. And so we see this going on throughout the book, this letter, this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Perhaps the center of... Book of 1 Corinthians is chapter 13 because here Paul counters their arrogance. Chapter 13 is commonly referred to as the great love chapter. Love is spoken of in chapter 13 in maybe one of the most uh, magnificent ways in, in any resource, but in But the love that is spoken of in chapter 13 then is displayed in the gospel that is proclaimed in chapter 15. So Paul talks about how we ought to How love is patient and love is kind and how even if I have even the most amazing spiritual abilities to do certain things, even faith to move mountains or the ability to to speak in in languages unknown to other people or to heal or I have prophetic powers. Even if I have that, but I do not have love, I have nothing, Paul says. And then we get to chapter 15 and we see the death death. Burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which is the ultimate manifestation of the love that is described in chapter 13. And then when we get to chapter 16, it's easy to discount chapter 16 as just Paul's calendar, his itinerary. But in chapter 16, we're going to, especially today, we're going to see that love. The love that Paul writes about in chapter 13 that he that is displayed in the person and work of Christ in chapter 15, we see that love shown in real and concrete ways. It is not a hypothetical love. It is a love that takes care of people. It is a love that sees a need and meets the need. It is a love that spends itself on the relief of suffering Christians. We talked about that last week. We see um, it is the... um, Love for Christians in far distant regions. We see it as in a love that breaks down social and racial and ethnic barriers. It is the taking care of visiting ministers. It is love that, is, that, is, that has filled the believers and it overflows them from them and it pours out on those whom they come in contact with. So that's where we have been. Let me give you a little preview of where I hope to go today. This theme of love continues. In fact, Paul is going to give us five imperatives. And, and one of those imperatives, the last one, and the one that I think summarizes the other four, and that is love the brethren. I'll unpack that as we go along. There are four imperatives, four imperatives. I'm sorry, five commands. And one of those commands is to love one another. This love then we will see is demonstrated in people from various walks of life, from unfamiliar places who form relationships for the health of God's church. We're going to see the power of the local, independent, autonomous churches as they cooperate together for the good of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. And this letter then will conclude with Paul's affirmation of his love for this imperfect church. So that's where we're going to, uh, just a, big, a brief general idea of where we're going to go today. So if you will, will you join with me as we read in God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'll begin with verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. Let all that you do be done in love. I'm sorry, i got to go to 13. Listen now to the inerrant word of the living God. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our, God, our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So Paul begins this... Conclusion, if you will, he begins this with five imperatives. And those imperatives be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. I want to unpack them. And this first one is to be watchful. That is to stay awake or to, to be alert. And it is often used. In reference to the second advent. So oftentimes when we see this command to be alert or to stay awake, it is often used in reference to the perusia, to the perusia, that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see this in Matthew chapter 24 verse 42, where, where Jesus says, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We see this also then in, um, Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Same thing. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keep his, keeps his garment on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So there is this this uh call to be awake, to stay alert in light of the fact that Christ is coming again. Now, it's possible that Paul is using this uh, imperative this command to be alert to stay awake um, to be watchful in a much more general sense that is possible but I think given the context of Christ's second coming in chapter 15 that Paul is especially narrowing in on this idea of be alert stay awake be watchful as you wait for the coming of your Lord and Savior, so it probably I think the context affirms this narrow view. But having affirmed this narrow view, we need to then uh, consider the fact that as we live in, in, in alertness and awakeness, if you will, um, as, as we live in that, it it requires a a broader view or a broad view of our life. In other words, our life should anticipate that event. Our life, the way we live, what we do today should give evidence of the fact that we are alert and awake, awake and waiting for the return of Christ. The Christian life is one of alertness. We cannot live in a stupor. Christians are not called to live in a stupor. And unfortunately, the Corinthian church is in a stupor. They have allowed sin to permeate their lives, as I mentioned in my, in my introduction, their arrogance, their, their immorality, their drunkenness during the Lord's Supper, that type of thing. They have allowed sin to permeate their lives and they have um, fallen asleep or certainly they are in a stupor. One's life needs to anticipate the coming of Christ, and one of the key things that we find that will um, be evidence of alertness is that of prayer, because we cannot pray without knowing what is going on. First Peter, chapter four, verse seven. I didn't put First Peter up on the screen, so let me find it. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, we read this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us. So Paul is calling his church, Paul is calling the church, he is calling various churches that he founded or that he has a relationship with, to pray. Because we cannot pray without knowing what is going on. Prayer, a, a life of prayer, is a life in watchfulness. It is a life that it is evidence of a life that is being watchful and alert and awake. It reminds me where Jesus was in the garden and he called his disciples to come and pray with him for one hour. And they slept. And he grieves, could you not stay awake with me for one hour? Can we not be alert in prayer as we await for the coming, that glorious day when the Lord returns? So, this first imperative calls us to be ready for Christ's glorious appearing. This readiness will affect all of our lives. The second imperative or the second command is stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm implies that there is some sort of opposition. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 will be, be helpful here, and I think I have it up on the screen. Oh no, I don't. <clears throat> I have it here. Philippians 127 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether i come to see you or i am absent i may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and then in second thessalonians Second Thessalonians chapter two, fifteen, we read, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So be awake and stand firm. Holding fast to the apostles' teaching. This is and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Hold fast to the apostles' teaching. The early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. There is a constant pressure today to abandon biblical truth. The truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. In an age where believers face the deluge of information, mostly from sources absent a biblical worldview, we must be even more firmly planted. Think about what are the sources that influence us? What are the sources that influence you? Is it God's Word? Do we answer our social issues with God's Word or do we reach for the pragmatic wisdom of the age? We must be firmly planted. There is a tendency, even amongst Christians, to favor something new. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. The idea that anything that is old needs to be disregarded and and pushed aside, but anything that's new, well, that's something we need to get on board with. And there is... Always something, quote, new, some new way to see Scripture, some new revelation, some new word from God. I'm going to give you an old word from God. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried in, that He rose again on the third day. You will not get new revelation here. You will just get a bunch of old, truthful Revelation that God has revealed from us and we will repeat it over and over and over again every week to help you stand firm. Human wisdom infects the church. We are not opposed to wisdom. We are not opposed. In fact, we pray that we have wise people to help guide us. But it needs to be godly wisdom. And so... Paul calls on the church, stand firm. And not just stand firm, but stand firm in the faith. We face many, many challenges, my friends. Many challenges. And Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, um, helps us to see some of these some of these challenges. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember that, folks. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not the Supreme Court. It is not who is in power. It's not the city council. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the schemes of the devil. For we do for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against The third imperative is to act like men. Now, before you label Paul a misogynist, the idea here is really the idea of courage and the idea of maturity. Being mature is um, being contrasted with being children. In fact, earlier in the letter, Paul, chastise the the Corinthians because for being children needing milk you are unable to eat the meat that that I'm wanting to give you but you are immature and you need milk and he chastises them for that in chapter 14 verse 20 um, Paul also calls them warns them about being children where he says brothers do not be children in your thinking be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Church act like men. Grow up. Be mature. Let us not be those guilty of being unable to digest the nourishing depths of God's word. In Ephesians chapter four, verses thirteen through fifteen. Again, we see this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, in other words, children, what is the characteristic of children? They're tossed to and fro by waves. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. The characteristics of children is that they hear something new and they're going, oh, that looks pretty, or see something shiny and hear it proclaimed in some by by some very um, charismatic individual and we think, oh, maybe that is the truth. We do not need to be children. The characteristic of children is they're they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Be men. Be mature. Stand fast. It is the idea of courage. That is, we are not carried away by every wind of doctrine and the idea of courage has certainly carries with it the idea that we are able to speak the truth in love and we are able to say, act like men. Call out errant teaching as it is. That is wrong. That is not what the Lord has said. That takes courage. It's much easier, I can tell you from experience, just to be silent. When we hear people blaspheme Christ. Believers of courage stand for the truth that Christ has called us to. act like men, be mature, let's not be children. It's one of the sad things is, for, for a pastor for really any church is to see people who've been part of a church for 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years they say oh I've been to this church for 30 or 40 years and they still have no grasp or very little grasp of the truths of God's word act like men and the fourth imperative the fourth command is to be strong This one is very interesting to me because we've got to do a little grammar here. This is a passive verb. In other words, So that's why I put on the screen, be strengthened. I think that might be um, a way of putting it because um, it's it's the idea of a derived strength. It is not be strong. In other words, Paul is not encouraging, go out and lift more weights. Go out and run further. Go out and, and... And through exercise become strong. But it is a derived strength. It is strength that comes from outside of you. Somebody else is strengthening you. And this strength does not come through exercise, but through being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a group, the Corinthians, they thought they were strong. They thought they were wise. They thought they were spiritual. But they were weak. They were relying on their own effort. But Paul... Call them. Be strengthened. Ephesians chapter three, verse sixteen. Ephesians chapter three, verse sixteen. Paul. And I'm going to combine this with uh, Psalm chapter one twenty-seven, but. Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So according to the riches to the riches of God's glory, he might grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. God is strengthening you how? Through his spirit. Psalm 27 verse 14 talks about waiting on the Lord, yielding your life to him, and he will strengthen you. Church, waiting on the Lord, yielding our life to him, giving priority to the things that he gives priority to. It is a it is not a strength that I attain by myself, but it is a derived strength and let me let me just encourage you who are here today, that one way that you can be strengthened is to gather with God's people on the Lord's day in the Lord's place. You will be strengthened. He will give you um, greater and greater strength. And it doesn't come all at once. You're not going to walk out of here I, I think about it and i 've used this illustration before after twenty one years there 's probably no illustration i haven 't used at some point, so just I repeat myself, just get used to it but i I remember one day um it was a long time ago i was a a member at the gym out on the res, and there was a a kid who came in he 's like in high school, senior in high school, and he 's this skinny little i don 't know 100 pound kid and he was playing basketball and doing track and some other things but he was there every day. I assume he was there every day. I wasn't there every day but (laughs) he was there all the time and then he went off to college and, and I didn't see him and then the next summer he came back and this guy walks into the gym and his upper body was a triangle. His waist is like this. He He wasn't a bodybuilder, but you could tell you didn't want to to run into this guy on the field. And I'm thinking to myself, and I'm going, that's that kid. That's that skinny kid who used to come in here every day. And I'm thinking, when did he get so buff? Well, there was no day. It didn't just come like one day he, he lifted that one weight that, boom, and he puffed out. It was little by little, lifting weights every single day, running every single day. And little by little, he is gaining strength, little by little. And one day, this guy is buff. And that is the way it is as we gather together and we we come together on the Lord's Day. Are you going to walk out of here buff? I, I don't know, maybe. But more likely than not, it's by consistently giving ourselves to the things of God, saying yes to the things that God has called us to do and saying no to the things that God has called us to refrain from and to, and to be with God's people, to serve in the way that God has called us to serve and to entrust Him to strengthen us by His Holy Spirit. Be strong, church. Be strong. He, Christ, will make you strong. And then finally, the fifth imperative, which I think sums up everything and will sum up the the rest of the the chapter. Um, And that is, let all that you do be done in love. I would say this is perhaps a central theme of this section because if you look at verse 24, Paul talks about love. He kind of wraps everything up with this This idea of love, but is, I think, the central theme of this section. Let everything you do be done in love. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the hallmark of this theme. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love I am nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I, now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The Corinthians fell short of this fruit. And that is evidenced by the letter. The reason Paul is writing this letter is to correct the Corinthians They have fallen short of this fruit. There are schisms. There are superiorities. They are permitting sin. They are suing one another. They are um, segregating the Lord's Supper according to economic realities. They are... segmenting the church in their use of spiritual gifts. They are not displaying the love of God that is found in Christ. Love is the hallmark of the Christian faith. Love is grounded in the love of God. We love because He first loved us. It is demonstrated in the work of Christ. This is love that He gave Himself for us. And the fruit of the Spirit, the first one mentioned... Love this goes beyond simply being nice. Sometimes we, th- we think, well, we just got to be nice. Paul spoke the truth in love and sometimes he spoke harshly to this group of people. But the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is an expression or a demonstration that Paul loves these people. I've said it before. If Paul didn't love these people, he would have never written this letter. Instead, he's writing it to call them back to Christ. Love is an action. So I would encourage us this day to and this week to pray and to think about, Lord, how can I love my brother and my sister at the church? How can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I love a lost and dying world? So let everything that you do now be done in love. Those are the five imperatives. Paul then goes on and he talks about this common bond that the people um, share with one another. And in the rest of the letter, in uh, verses 15 and following, we, we find a lot of names and a lot of locations. Paul mentions a lot of people's names and a lot of geographical regions this to me was so interesting because here's what we have and we touched on this a little last week but what we see is we see local communities of churches were spreading across the empire we see churches in the region of galatia we see churches in macedonia we see churches in achaia we see churches in asia the church is spreading across the empire communities are are flourishing in fact, last week we, we talked about the contrib- we considered the contribution of those from Galatia, for those from Macedonia and Achaia, and now we are introduced that there are believers in Asia. And that is now included in the list of regions where Christ has been proclaimed and the gospel is bearing fruit. It is these local communities have, it's interesting how these local communities have strong ties with one another. In fact, they send representatives to one another. Listen, when the brothers from such and such a place come, make sure you welcome them. And when, and when they leave to go to another region, make sure you send them on their way well-equipped. They have strong ties with one another. They send representatives to one another. In fact, Paul talks about people coming from Corinth to Ephesus, which is where he's writing this letter. Um, he talks about, "I rejoice at the coming of stephanus and Fortunatus and, and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence, and for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. people are coming, and they 're refreshing Paul, and other people are coming and, and ministering to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are going to be selling a delegation to Jerusalem." So from Corinth to to Ephesus, uh, people are set to encourage Paul. They refresh my spirit. So we see membership in the local church connects us to the global church. I want you to remember that. Membership to the local church connects us to the global church. There is a danger in churches, especially small churches like this, well, in all churches, to become myopic and just become um, insular and looking upon our our own self. And when... When I got here in 2001, we were a very myopic church and, and it makes sense because we were just trying to survive and we were trying to think about how, how are we even going to make it another week. And so we were really focused, but we began to, how do we look beyond our four walls? When will we be strong enough? That was always the goal. Let's look beyond our church. And so we are part of a global community. I love how brother, the word brother is one of the, the main words in these um, last few verses, which talks about a familial relationship with one another, that we aren't just, well, there's a Christian over there, we're brothers, we're sisters. We come from different areas, we come from different regions, we come from different churches. One of the great things that we love to do when we travel is to go to other churches, and sometimes it's a little frightening. And, and but, but usually, most of the time, when we go... Um, how welcomed we are by our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that those who visit this church, maybe they're just here for for this week or maybe they're here for, for a long time or what have you, but everybody is welcome because they are brothers and they are sisters in Christ. They greet, and there's this, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's this affectionate greeting. Um, I'm, it was a social thing, so please don't greet me with a... Uh, a holy kiss. All y'all who know me probably know I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable even with a holy hug. I'll, I'll deal with it. And, uh, and I appreciate your, your care for me. But like when we were in Ecuador, everybody greets everybody with a kiss. That's just what you do. You kiss everybody on the cheek. And usually it's twice, once on one side, once on the other side. And uh, that's just what you do when you see one another and when you leave one another. So I love the fellowship. And then then note all the personal names that we see. Apolo- we saw Apollos last week, and we see the household of Stephanas, and we see uh, Aquila and Prissa, and we see others um, in, in this church. I find that awesome because they have a personal knowledge of one another. Again, there's a familial relationship. The household of Stephanus, Paul talks about. Paul expressed his love for this family. Well, he says that they're the first converts in Achaia. So Paul shared the gospel with them and they responded. So how does Paul express his love to this family? He expressed his love to this family by sharing the love of God in Christ with them. Then God demonstrated his love for them by opening their hearts to hear and receive the good news of salvation in Christ proclaimed by Paul. And now they display their love by serving the saints. That is a life of service towards others. They're not busybodies, but those who will relieve burdens. So see how this cycle works. The, the love of God prompts Paul to go and share the love of Christ with these people. And God then opens their hearts and enables them by His love. He opens their hearts so that they can receive the good news. And then they go about displaying their love by serving the saints and by lifting up others. What a great cycle that is. And then Paul encourages church be subject to men to people such as this. We don't like that idea. Be subject. I'm not subject to anybody. I'm I'm a free agent. I just do what I want to do. The Christian life is is a submitted life. And Paul calls the Corinthians to be subject to and this would have been a challenge to the Corinthians who gloried in their imagined superiority and their imagined wisdom and in their so-called prestige. But I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, when we find godly men and women, we should not resist giving ourselves to them for our good and for our maturity. When you find men and women who are godly and living the life of faith, not, nobody does it perfectly, but they are living... Uh, a gospel-centered life, a Christ-centered life, folks, you would do well to give yourself to them. In fact, we might call that discipleship. The challenge here is not to be on top, not to be superior, but to learn to serve. Submit to those whose lives give priority to Christ. You will do well. You will do well when you find somebody, if you find somebody who loves Christ and demonstrates that, and you say, I'm going to sit under that. I don't need to be their boss. I need to learn. Finally, Paul talks about two other personal names that we've seen uh, elsewhere, like in the book of Acts. We see Aquila and Prissa. These were believers who had been kicked out of Rome, and uh, Paul met them. And they they began to minister together. And here we see that they have a church in their home. And here they send greetings to the the believers in Corinth. So I just find it interesting, just a whole bunch of personal names. In other words, this little local church in Corinth is, is connected with a worldwide group of believers from all over the empire, people who are standing firm for the name of Christ. So here we see a local church. It is independent and autonomous, and yet it has connected itself to a global church by taking care of its needs, by making sure that we are in friendly, uh, we have friendship with people from, from outside of our area because they're brothers, they're sisters in Christ. And then Paul concludes the letter. And he says, I personally write this conclusion. And then he says, this. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Well, that seems a little sharp. Seems unusually sharp. But Paul is likely addressing those, quote, in the church who entice others to arrogance and pride and schisms. Their false teaching is indicates that they have no love for Jesus and they are actively defiling his bride. This malediction, at the end of our church, we always say a benediction. This is a malediction, a bad sending forth. But it finds parallel. We find it in a number of other places, like we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. He says, if anyone does not obey What we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. Are you teaching on this tonight, Charlie? All right, well, I won't. I'll just read it. And you can go to uh, church tonight and hear uh, a great exposition of this. But Titus chapter 3 10 and 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self condemned. It is to these people, Paul is saying, if they don't love the Lord, they are accursed. The church contains those who do not love Jesus. And then Paul says, Our Lord come. Our Lord come, that Christ would deal with those who harm his people and bring lasting rest to those who love him. And then Paul concludes with grace and love. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Sometimes Paul rebuked the church. Sometimes he was sarcastic. Sometimes he was harsh. and Sometimes he was pointed. Paul loves this group of people. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. Paul is driven by his love for them. He wrote a 16-chapter letter to them and then he wrote a second one. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them. Grace and love close out this amazing letter. And so I'll conclude with this. First Corinthians may be one of the most practical letters in the New Testament. It helps us understand how doctrine affects deeds, how creeds affect conduct, how orthodoxy affects orthopraxy. We are warned against the errors of arrogance, but not in a moralistic or a legalistic format. Paul's not saying, don't be ar- just don't be arrogant, or be less arrogant, or be less proud. Paul's not just giving them um, moralistic or legalistic commands. He's not just um, saying, do this. If all we do is, if, Paul, all, if all Paul does is say, don't be arrogant, and then leaves them with the burden of that command, he has he simply given them law. Paul gives them both law and grace. Christ is presented as the one who died for our sins, even our arrogance. And he has filled us with his spirit and in him, we are magnificently transformed, sometimes little by little, sometimes slower than we 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 wish. But it is Christ then who is transforming us into his image. And we can rest that in him, we will be made in his likeness. This concludes the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Father God, we come.